Section 60 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, an authentic record of remarkable cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh. Homicide, Part 37, Catherine King, the dupe and victim of Harry Hayward. Adry A. and Harry T. Hayward. The elder son, Adry, was married and with his family occupied apartments near his father's. At the time of the tragic occurrence of which we write, December 1894, Harry, the younger son, was 29 years of age and was known as a fast young man who was recognized by, if not actually admitted to, the better class of society. He was strongly addicted to gambling and played whenever he could obtain funds for the purpose. His father had started him in life with a handsome property, both real and personal all of which was lost in gambling ventures. In personal appearance, he was of excellent physique, nearly six feet in height, well-proportioned, erect figure, fair complexion, and of attractive manners. It was an easy matter for such as he to win the admiration and eventually the absolute confidence of a rather commonplace but ambitious young woman, Miss Catherine Ging, a dressmaker who was about his own age, tall, and although of masculine type, was passably good-looking. She occupied business parlors in what is known as the Syndicate Block, Minneapolis, where she had built up a profitable business through her thrift in industry, and was reputed to have accumulated a few thousand dollars, which she had placed at interest. She resided in the Ozark Flats, where she had apartments with her niece, Miss Ireland. On November 23, 1894, Miss King called at the Minneapolis Agency of the Travelers Insurance Company of Hartford, Connecticut, and inquired for Mr. Purple, an agent of the company with whom she was acquainted. Agent Purple, being temporarily absent from the office, an appointment was made with Miss King for him to call at her dressmaking shop on the afternoon of the same day. Agent Purple called agreeably to the appointment and was informed by Miss King that she had decided to take out some accident insurance, and the agent took her application for what is known as an annuity accident policy in the sum of $5,000. The policy was delivered to her that evening, for which she gave her check in payment of premium. The next day, Agent Purple saw her again and explained that the policy was payable, $1,000 upon proofs of death and $1,000 annually thereafter during four years. She then told him that she intended to borrow $7,000 and wanted to use the policy as collateral security for the loan. The agent suggested that a policy paying the entire sum at one time would be better for that purpose, and so a new application was taken and a new policy written, dated November 24, 1894, and was delivered by Agent Purple to Miss Ging at her room the next day. November 25th, at which time Harry Hayward was present. Three or four days later, Hayward came to the office of the insurance agent, having with him the accident policy recently written upon Miss Ging, together with a recent policy upon her life, written by the New York Life Insurance Company. 
He also had assignments of both policies made by Miss Ging to himself. These assignments were in duplicate, and he left one to be forwarded to the home office of the travelers. Ten days after this insurance was written, at about half past eight o'clock on the evening of December 3rd, 1894, the dead body of Catherine Ging was discovered in a lonely part of a road running through a tamarack swamp within the park system lying on the outskirts of Minneapolis and near the eastern shore of a sheet of water known as Lake Calhoun. A young man, a railway employee, was returning home that night, having taken a street railway car which brought him to the road in question and to a point within about 50 yards of where the body lay that evening. When he first got off the car, he heard a carriage coming through the marsh road but could see nothing. Walking on, he met a running horse with a top buggy. He stepped to one side thinking the driver was going pretty fast but paid no further attention to the matter and proceeded in the direction of his house when he very nearly stepped upon the dead body of a woman lying in the center of the road. He went directly home, obtained assistance, and returned to the place when it was observed that the body was lying partly on its side and partly on its face. A carriage robe of fur was lying tumbled up about the body. The body was warm. It was supposed that a carriage accident had happened and a physician was summoned. In the meantime, a patrol wagon and police officers arrived at the place. The woman being pronounced dead, the body was at once taken to the morgue, where it was more critically examined and a pistol shot wound of the head was discovered. The bullet having entered at the back of the right ear and passing through the brain had lodged in the left orbit. Up to that time, no one had identified the body. At about nine o'clock that night, a horse and buggy without a driver came into the livery stable of George Gooseman. The horse belonged there, and the fact of its walking in alone attracted no attention at the time. The man in charge harnessed and took the horse to its stable. On returning to the buggy, he found that the robe was missing, and that there was a pool of clotted blood upon the cushioned seat. He summoned assistance, and police headquarters were called up by telephone. It was soon learned that Catherine Ging had hired this livery horse that evening, and the body lying in the morgue was soon after quickly identified. Miss Ging had engaged this team of the carriage agent of the West Hotel, whom she knew and who lived at the Ozark Flats. She had previously driven this particular horse, which was gentle and quiet, and had ordered it for 7 o'clock that evening, to call for it at the West Hotel. She was at the hotel promptly got into the buggy and drove off. A careful searching and exhaustive investigation was quickly set on foot, and the mayor of the city, Honorable W. H. Eustace, gave his personal and most valuable efforts to solve the mystery of what appeared to be a most unaccountable murder. Suspicion quickly pointed out Harry Hayward as the person most intimately acquainted with the murder woman and best informed as to her social relations, her habits, and her business dealings. At first, Hayward was consulted in rather an advisory capacity, and he was asked to give his opinion upon the several theories that were being evolved. With the utmost composure and thoroughly self-possessed, he showed a willingness and a desire to follow up every clue, and if possible, hunt down the perpetrator of the crime. It was clear from the start that he did not commit the deed, for at the hour of its occurrence, he was enjoying himself at the Grand Opera House, in the company of an estimable young lady whom he had escorted there. Still, he was regarded with lurking mistrust early in the case, 
and through his brother Adri, the evidences of crime were quickly confronting him. It appeared that the Hayward family had a friend and legal advisor in the person of Mr. L. M. Stewart, a wealthy gentleman who had retired from the active practice of his profession of attorney at law, and through some vague instinct of honesty, Adri Hayward had sought this friend for advice. The circumstances may best be related in the following letter addressed by Mr. Stewart to the county attorney. Three days before the murder of Miss Ging, Adri A. Hayward, the brother of Harry, came into my office very greatly excited and told me that Harry and a confederate were going to murder Miss Ging in order to get money from her life insurance, and he told me that Harry pretended to have loaned her the money and had managed to have her display the money in large sums in several places, and that Harry had also displayed Miss Ging's notes, taken also to many people as also her life insurance policies, and that she was to be got out riding and killed in order to get the life insurance money, which he said was $10,000. In fact, he stated substantially all the particulars as they have occurred, and said he learned them from Harry, and as I said, he was greatly excited and wanted to know what could be done to prevent it. I had the least belief that there was any foundation for his fears, and told him it was only some of Harry's big talk, told him that if there had been any such scheme on the part of Harry, he certainly would not be such a fool as to tell of it, but he seemed perfectly convinced that the intention to murder the girl was genuine, and said it was certainly planned and would be accomplished in a very few days. I repeated to him again and again that while Harry was wicked, he was not a fool, and that he certainly would not have given himself away in advance in that way if there had been any intention to perpetrate such a crime. But he did not seem to doubt the genuineness of the intended murder. If I had supposed that there was the most remote possibility of the, his story, or rather belief, being founded on genuine intention to commit a crime, I should have advised him at once to go to the superintendent of the police and lay the matter before him, but I had no belief whatever in its being anything but bluster and bluff on the part of Harry. But events proved conclusively that Adry was right. I knew long ago that Harry was one of the most mendacious liars and dishonest rogues I had ever seen, but I had no idea of his being such a criminal. When Adry came into my office to tell me the above, he said he wanted to talk with me confidentially, but crimes of this character should be promptly punished to the full extent of the law. This letter put a quietus upon all investigation in other directions, and warrants were issued for the arrest of both Adry and Harry Hayward. Both were soon in custody, but before being locked up, Adry was fully interrogated upon the points indicated in the foregoing letter. Under the advice of Mr. S. Stewart, he consented to make a clean breast of it, and he related to the officials the following story. He subsequently testified to the same facts at the trial of his brother Harry. He said Harry had told him that he had made gambling investments for Miss Ging, sometimes winning and sometimes losing, and he obtained considerable money from her for that purpose. Sometime during the month of July previous, Harry told him that he had Miss Ging's note that she wanted to get discounted, being short of funds. The note was secured by mortgage upon some mill property, and the mill was insured. He wanted Adri to go with him to the place and see the miller. 
Adri declined at first, but finally consented and went there with him, driving there in a carriage. On arriving at the place, Harry inquired of the miller about getting the money on the notes, and failing in that, asked to look over the property. Adri remained in the carriage while Harry went into the mill. About two or three weeks afterward, the mill burned down. The insurance was subsequently paid. About two months later, in September, Harry sounded Adri upon the subject of killing Miss Ging, asked if he, Adri, would kill a woman for $2,000. Harry suggested that the woman could be very easily shot, that he, Harry, could drive out with her or could have her taken out, and that nobody would suspect them. Adri declared that he would have nothing to do with killing people, but Harry recurred to the subject at various times and spoke of employing a certain hackman for the purpose. He detailed several plans to accomplish his murderous purpose. One was to take the girl out in a boat and drown her, but he feared that would look like a suicide and defeat the collection of the insurance money. He spoke of driving out in a buggy with her and wondered how she would fall if she struck a boulder by the roadside, whether she would fall towards the boulder or from the boulder when she struck. Later on, Harry concluded that Adri would not answer his purpose and told him so, declaring that he had no nerve, but he had now found the right man, who had nerve and who knew enough to keep his mouth shut. He said the man was Klaus Blixt, a stationary engineer having charge of the engine at the Ozark Flats. A few days later, Harry exhibited to Adri a package of bills, saying there was $7,000 in the roll. Harry said in the presence of others whom Adri names that he was going to invest $7,000 in business with a young lady, that he was going to take out insurance upon her life and that she was going to give him her notes secured by the life insurance. At a later interview, Harry informed Adri that Miss King had taken a $5,000 life policy only instead of $7,000 as had been planned but she had remedied the defect by taking a $5,000 accident policy also. And now, said Harry, I will make more money than I had intended to. I will make the notes now for the full amount of the policies, $10,000. According to Adri's best recollection, about the 22nd or 23rd of November, Harry wrote the notes for Miss Ging to sign, writing them in Adri's presence and on his father's desk. There were three or four of these notes. On Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, Harry said to his brother Adri, I was coming down this morning and Blixt asked me if it was not time to sacrifice the dressmaker. Adri replied, Harry, you are not going to kill the girl, are you? Yes, we are, he says. She will have to be the victim this time. Klaus Blixt was taken into custody and locked up at the police station. At first, he denied any knowledge of the matter. But after being alone a while in his cell, he expressed a desire to see the mayor and chief of police. They went to him, and to them the miserable wretch expressed a desire to make truthful confession and relieve his conscience of its burden. A stenographer was called in and every word was duly noted down. Soon the whole secret was disclosed, and the perpetrators of the crime were in the hands of the law. At the trial of Hayward, Blixt became an important witness and his testimony, when divested of a vast amount of superfluous matter, was substantially as follows. My full name is Klaus Alfred Blix, age 41, born in Sweden, came to this country about 1860, have lived in Minneapolis about eight years, 
went to work for W.W. Hayward in April last, having charge of the steam machinery in Ozark Flats, married and reside at the Ozark. I first met Harry Hayward in his father's office. After I started into work at the Ozark, I saw him once in a while, up to about six or seven weeks prior to my arrest. During those weeks, he was down in the basement, where I worked most every day. It was my duty to run the elevator at noon hours and in the evening. I had seen Catherine Ging there, was not acquainted with her, knew her by sight, that was all. About a week or so before this affair occurred, I needed a throttle valve, and I spoke to Harry about it, and he said come down to the office tomorrow and he would go with me and buy one. Next day, W.W. Hayward told me I could hurry down to the office because Harry was waiting for me. I went there and saw Harry sitting near the table and Miss Ging at one end of the table. He was writing and putting up some papers and he told her that she should sign the note and she signed it. After he asked me to sign as witness, there were two bunches of money lying on the table. After I had witnessed the note, he told her to take the money and go into the other room and count it. After Miss Ging left, Harry went with me and bought the throttle valve and then we went to the Ozark. In the evening, he came to the Ozark basement and said to me, referring to Miss Ging, I am going to kill her. I am going to take her down. Or, I have taken her down already to gambling. He said she gambled as high as $1,000 and even bought green goods. And now, he said, after this, I am going to take her to the restaurant and have her show this money. And then I will remark, he says, that she is awful careless to show so much money and that she will be robbed and killed for it. He said that he was going to kill her, and that he thought he was going to make about $10,000 on her. During the week, he kept on telling me how he had taken her around the restaurant and showing $2,000, setting it in a tumbler beside her when she ate. And then the waiter remarked, and he remarked that she was awfully careless, because she had so much money with her and she might get killed for it. And he took her over to St. Paul, and had her do the same thing over there. He said to me that she wanted to marry him and that he had promised to marry her. He said he was going to get her to assign the life insurance over to him as security for money. Then he said to me, I have got all the money from her, and now I am going to have her sign the life insurance over to me and then kill her. The witness related several plans which Harry had formed for killing Miss Ging. In all of them, it was intended to have the surrounding circumstances such as to give the injuries the appearance of having been affected through accidental means or else intentionally inflicted for the purpose of robbery. Finally, on Monday evening, December 3rd, the witness said, Harry came to the basement, bringing a bottle of whiskey. He said, Blix, here's some whiskey. I said, I don't want any whiskey. I don't drink whiskey. Well, he said, you fool, this is not a common whiskey. Take some of it. I drank some of it, and he said, I'm going out tonight, and I want you to help me. You have got to help me. Tonight she is going to die. It cuts no figure, but tonight she is going to die. And then he told me about everything he was going to do. I said, Harry, can't you make money some other way and not kill the poor girl? He said, I would rather kill her than any dog I ever saw. It does me good to kill people. He told me he had killed two before, and it was nothing to kill people. I told him I could not help him, and he said, Well, Blix, you have got to help me or I will have to kill you. 
If you don't help me, I will kill you, and if you help me, you are all right, he says. Come here. And he called me over to the bench, and he says, Now, I don't believe in your wife. I think it good if she was not living, and I want to kill your wife because I'm afraid that she might hurt both you and me. I said, No, I am not afraid of my wife. She doesn't know anything, and I promise you I will not tell her anything, I says. Harry, whatever you do with me, don't hurt my wife. He says, If you come to my wishes and do what I want you to do, your wife is all right. But if you don't, she is not. He said, I have this plan all laid out so that the smartest detectives in the world can't get at it. Go and do what I tell you to do, and your wife is all right. I says, all right, Harry, I will do whatever you say. Then he came to me and says, Now, you take my revolver, but I want you to write a receipt to show that you have bought my revolver of me. And I says, I won't sign it. I won't sign any receipt. Well, he says, if you don't want to do that, then I want you to tie a string to the revolver and make it so that you can run your fist through the string so I may be sure you won't drop it. I says, no, I don't want any string around the revolver. He gave me six cartridges, saying, These are extra long, and don't belong to the revolver, but they are long and good, and after you have killed her, you take these extra cartridges and put them in the revolver. Take the extra ones out and put in these other ones that belong to the revolver, and put the revolver under my pillow when you come back. Then he says, When I get ready, you come up to my flat, I will instruct you where to go and all about it. He left me for a little while and went away. I don't know how long he was out, but after a while he came back and says, Put on your coat and come on. Now, he says, You go out on the other side of Hennepin Avenue and wait for me until I come out. And when you see me come out, you follow down to the corner of Kenwood and Hennepin. I went across to Hennepin Avenue and down pretty nearly two blocks and stood there watching until I saw him coming. Then I walked ahead down to the corner of Kenwood and Hennepin when I turned around at a little pathway going across a vacant lot and saw him cut across there. He hawked and coughed, and that meant I should come that way with him. He went on probably four roads further and I followed. After I got across the first street, Lindale I think, I followed him a block further. He crossed the street, and when I came to where he crossed, I saw a horse and top buggy, and he was standing there by it, talking with Miss Ging, who was in the buggy. He said to her, This man is one of the gang. He says to me, Get in there. I lost my cap in getting in, and he picked it up for me, and went around and whispered to her. Then he said to me, You drive up to Hennepin, and go around Hennepin Boulevard, around to Lake Street, and follow around the west side of Lake Calhoun, and I will meet you. I will have a team, and when you meet the two horses, you exchange with us. He said to me and to her that we should keep our heads in pretty close so that we would not be noticed. The top of the buggy was up. I turned and drove as directed, leaving Hayward standing there. I kept going on the west side, and went as far as the ice house, she asked if Harry was coming, if he was out buying green goods. I said I did not know, and we kept going further on. She said, I was held up here once, and I said, did you lose anything? No, she said, we put the rings we had in our mouths, and that is all the conversation we had until we reached the straight railway. 
After that, I had my revolver on the seat at my side, and she asked what I had there. I told her what it was, and that Harry had said to me that it was the best thing to have out this way because we might be held up. As we are going on, she kept looking for Harry, and every little while she put out her head and I kept thinking it over how I could do this. I thought of getting out and running off and leaving her, and leaving everything. Then I thought of my wife and that he would kill her, sure, and that is why I stayed in the buggy. After that, she kept looking around, and if I had wanted to, I could have killed her ten times. At last, she put out her head again, and I raised my revolver and fired. I never looked where I shot, but it happened that I shot her just where he told me to shoot her, where he asked the doctor would kill the quickest. After I had shot her, she threw herself back and sat right still. I kept going 25 or 30 yards further and was scared then. I took the robe off my knees and gave it to her and kept it shoved up against her. And when I had gone 25 or 30 yards more in that direction, I turned around and drove back slowly, holding the robe up against her. Then I began work to get her out of the buggy. I stooped down and moving her legs close together, I laid my hands so that she would not come against me. In falling out, she struck on the front wheel, turned around and laid on her side, the wheel going over her body, and I drove on. That is the way it happened. Continuing his testimony, Blixt said, After she was out of the buggy, I drove back to Hennepin Avenue and on up to Lindale, and then I got out of the buggy and let the horse go alone. Blixt returned to the Ozark Flats stopping on the way to drink, as he said, two small snits of beer because I didn't feel good. He reached the Ozark about 10 o'clock. He went to Harry's bathroom and removed the cartridges from the revolver, exchanging them for the other cartridges as directed previously by Hayward, and then placed the revolver under the pillow as he had been told to. He threw into the furnace the cartridges he had taken from the revolver and then went to bed. Sometime after 11 o'clock that night, after he had retired, Harry came to his bedroom to know if Blixt was there. He came again during the early morning hours, between 3 and 4 o'clock, and called out loudly, Blixt, are you asleep? Blixt answered roughly, No. Then Harry said, I have been downtown, and she has been murdered for her money. It seems as though she had met with some men, fellows of hers and that they murdered her and took my money, and my $7,000 is gone. I don't expect I shall ever see a cent of it, and the people downtown say it is the most horrible and cold-blooded murder that ever was committed, and there is not a clue to the murderer anywhere to be found. I have been upstairs talking to the little girl, trying to find out something, but she did not seem to know anything about it. I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I had better go down in the morning and notify the insurance company or not. Mrs. Blix was present and asked Hayward a few questions. Blix said nothing. Harry T. Hayward was charged by the indictment on which he was tried with the crime of murder in the first degree by aiding, abetting, inducing, and procuring Carl A. Blix to shoot Catherine Ging, thereby causing her death. The trial commenced on January 21, 1895, and continued uninterruptedly until March 8th. Although the state based its claim mainly upon the evidence of Blix and of Adry Hayward, it supported that evidence with voluminous and overwhelming corroborative proof, so that the story told by them remained practically unshaken. 
The motive for the murder, as appeared in evidence, was to recover the $10,000 insurance procured through Hayward's influence upon Miss Ging, and which had immediately afterward been assigned to him. The defense was masterly, and conducted by one of the most able of criminal lawyers, but the result was foreseen from the outset, and on the afternoon of March 8, 1895, the jury brought in a verdict of guilty as charged in the indictment. On the 9th of March, he was sentenced to be hanged at a time to be fixed by the governor of the state of Minnesota. This sentence was carried into effect on the 9th day of December, 1895. On the night preceding his execution, Hayward made a confession, or rather what he calls a full and final statement of my life, dwelling particularly upon the crime for which I am to be executed. The statement was made to three personal friends whom he authorized to publish as being the whole truth in regard to the gang murder. It is a rambling narrative and apparently truthful. He relates his early gambling experiences and gives brief account of other murders committed by him. He tells the full story of burning the mill mentioned in Adry's evidence, having set the fire himself. He admitted that there was no money transaction between himself and Miss Ging, and that the $7,000 loan was purely visionary. The only money in the scheme was the $40 to $60 premiums paid on the insurance policies. He states that the evidence of both Blixt and Adry was substantially correct. Throughout the whole recital of his confession, a mocking laugh played over his conscienceless face, and without a word or exhibition of regret, he disclosed the deep-laid and rooted depravity of his brief but demoniacal career. End of section 60. Read by Jordan Rempel, 2022.